to Open Mind UFO Radio. This is your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with Martin, back from wherever Willis. Well, I'm not actually back, but thank you. Got to get back in time. I just like singing that time. But uh, you yeah. were gone. You were, I'm still and gone. And you still are, yeah. I'm down in Miami. Well, thank you for taking time to come off the beach to do the show with us. Well... My pleasure, as always. So my guest, some uh, people will be a little bummed to hear that it is not Lou Elizondo. So I apologize. That was uh, the plan. But it turned out that Lou has a commitment that essentially uh, makes it so he can't do interviews for a few weeks. And um, to people that may sound intriguing, because it is. Now, I am meeting with Lou personally uh, in just a couple of weeks here, two or three weeks. And he says he'll give me some updates, and, and uh, by then he'll probably have some stuff I can share with you all, my listeners. However, as soon as he can, he will do an interview. We're just going to have to delay that um, just a few weeks here. And uh, so we'll get him on the air. And then at that point, he'll also be able to share why he couldn't talk to us uh, currently. And uh, it sounds like there is just a lot of really exciting news on the horizon. So I apologize for getting you all excited about this. Uh, However, I'll hold on to those questions that you all have. And we will get to them with Lou. And uh, we will have him on. However... Today's guest is really exciting. It is John Alexander. Of course, some of you are saying, Mm. well, you've had him on before quite a few times, but that's because he's such an important person to have on, especially right now. Uh, I think I mentioned that he spoke at the Phoenix MUFON, uh, the local group, just a few weeks ago. Uh, If you were on my Instagram, you saw some pictures that I posted of him up there doing his talk, but he touched on some really important things uh, regarding the government and their involvement with the paranormal. He would be the perfect mm. one to know because he's one of the most experienced people with the U.S. government and its involvement with the paranormal, in particular the military, because he was involved with these sort of programs. In fact, you may have seen the movie Men Who Stare at Goats yep. or read the book where the book was really more of a news report and the um, movie was kind of a a comedy. I thought it was funny, though. Mm. But uh, John Alexander is one of the people represented in the book and the movie because uh, this was about, you know, some of these psi projects, you know, these uh, uh, sort of projects that were going on. So John's important, uh, but he also at this talk outlined, here's how the government works, guys. Here's why there isn't so much about UFOs we see in the government. And here's why we might not want 
that in this arena. And so it's very intelligent. Um, it's getting down to the the important topics of that we have to think about now that the government, uh, at least these subcommittees, you know, are speaking about UFOs. They're interviewing David Fravor, the jet pilot uh, who saw the UFO for the Nimitz case in 2004 outside of San Diego. So there's an, this kind of resurgence of interest publicly by the government into UFOs. And where is it going to go? That is the question. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's a great conversation. Uh, he does reveal some stuff that he I haven't heard him talk about in other interviews. And you do have to remember, he also ran this program that was a little bit similar to ATIP, not just the acronym. His was the Advanced Theoretical Physics uh, Group. It was n- a non-official group, but similar to what ATIP was doing. Um, and uh, he does talk about the similarities uh, between his project and uh, Lou Elizondo's ATIP. And of course, ATIP was the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Of course, we talk about it practically every week um, for the last year or so. Uh, that's the one that Lou Elizondo ran in the Department of Defense. So that's the show for today, Mr. Martin. All right. That should be a good one. Did you even know what I was saying that uh, I was going to have Elizondo on? Uh, because I wasn't on last week. We did talk about it uh, briefly, you and I, uh, I think off the air that you said sometime soon, but I didn't realize it was supposed to be this week. Yeah, so that'll be postponed a few weeks. Uh, And of course, if you do want to see him and if you are scientific minded, uh, there is the uh, Scientific Coalition for Ufology, explorescu.org is their website. They're holding a conference in a few weeks in Alabama. Alabama. Exactly. Hmm. Now, this is science-oriented, so you got to be more into that sort of thing. But if you're interested, go to explorescu.org, and you'll see um, information on that. But And there's there's mm-hmm. actually, you know, I've heard from a few different people that are going there. They're not exactly science-orientated, but they're still going because they're very interested. Good. Yeah, like Randy Nickerson, for one, he's going. Really? Yep. Hmm. Interesting. All right, so are you ready to talk news? Sure. Well, my uh, it's not so much UFOs, but it's uh, mm. it's more. Sp- oh, is just that, kidding. Is that okay? Oh, anyway, it's about the opportunity. Mars rover is officially dead after it's after a fifteen year mission. Now, I, I breezed through this article, and this is in the New Scientist, uh, NewScientist.com. Uh, this particular article. Um, but uh, the news broke last, uh, I think it was, seemed like it was uh, Valentine's Day. I think that's when I saw, you know, across headlines that it's finally done. Um, and what I was breezing through the article trying to find, uh, as far as I remember, this thing wasn't supposed to last very long at all. And it just kept going and going and going. Little energizer bunny there. Yeah, the- I think you're right. And they were surprised it was going, and then they got more out of it. And I haven't read the details. I should know more. And and it's funny because I keep thinking I have to look, if, uh, you know, and and educate myself uh, on how long that was supposed to last. Because yes, it lasted for so long. Yeah, and then uh, of June in 2018, a a cloud of dust quickly. Um, grew dense enough to blot out the sun from Mars' surface and coated the rover, including all the important, you know, solar panels there to power it. 
So once I coded it, you know, that was it. Uh, that was the end of it. Now, you know, I don't think uh, I don't think it could ever restart. You know, I mean, after after it's off, but um, there, it was five thousand four hundred ninety-nine days. It was oh, here it is. Here it was only supposed to go for ninety days. Wow. So it went for five thousand four hundred ninety-nine days. So we and, got uh, our money's worth. We certainly did. And uh, it explored like a hundred different craters, uh, and you know the biggest thing uh, on these missions um, are you know the realization that there was water on Mars. I mean that's, I mean so much has come out of these. Um, I know I think it was uh, two thousand. Trying to remember when the two uh, were sent out there. Um, the I think it was two thousand four. The two rover Spirit and Opportunity, or is this? This is opportunity. So that's when they were put out in 2004. Mm-hmm. I think I'm repeating myself here. I've got too much sun. Somebody possibly. asked me the other day, what do I think about life on Mars? And I know this person, with, you know, he believes there's bases and all kinds of stuff going on up there. And uh, I told him, did you know Mars is the only planet completely inhabited by robots? <laughs> wow. Amazing. I never thought of it like that. Yeah, somebody had told me that, and I hadn't either, and I loved it, that that comment, and I wish I could give credit to whoever told it to me first. But uh, most people love it when, you know, you say that. They think, wow, that is interesting. Um, it really is. But, you know, I— This guy didn't like that comment, though. Oh, I bet. Well, I'm not a— I'm not into that type of conspiracy or anything, but I want— You know, people say, oh, there's squirrels on there. There's, you know, flying saucer parts, you know, et cetera, whatever. You hear all that type of stuff, but— I, I personally think that it's very likely that there was some type of life on there. I'm not saying intelligent life. Right. But uh, I think at some point there could have very well been life on there. Well, yeah, there you were know. rivers, and so we don't know if there were plants or anything like that. But um, I think you're right. That's what I think that NASA feels like, too, is that if it was, you know, had this uh, um, weather and water— on uh, running water at some point that that could be the case and i think um i think it seems to me that with i think uh they have another mission planned there that's going to be of uh, um you know even more scientific as far as research goes i mean the um i just think it's possible that we may eventually find that out i hope so yeah i hope so too speaking of news this is kind of cool, unless if that's okay if I move on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mensa has a story on ATIP, what we're just talking about, So, which is kind of interesting. Actually, more to the point, it covers ATIP, but it also talks about To the Stars Academy, of course, where Lou is now um, working with some very high-level individuals. And this is really cool. The person that Mensa talked to, and if you know who Mensa is, of course, they're an organization of people with high IQs. I think you have to have above 142 uh, or 124 or something like that to be in Mensa. And uh, so they've got this story and that they take seriously. They talk about how UFOs were kind of silly, but how these people, uh, credible people, are now taking them seriously. And they spoke with Steve Justice who is the chief operations officer of the aerospace division at To The Stars. And he is very, um, he's got a lot that he brings to the job as 
he was uh, he worked for Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works, and of course, Skunk Works developed the U two, the SR seventy one, the uh, Stealth, the F twenty two Raptor, F thirty five Lightning. I mean, all of the top technology was developed by these people, and these are the guys who built Area fifty one Skunk Works and, and maintained it for the CIA and for you know other organizations as well. But he has a quote here that's pretty cool. He says, To the stars is a group of people who came together to answer the questions that most of society is afraid to ask. Mm. There's this overwhelming body of evidence that indicates something strange is going on. So, really cool. So, uh, I, I think it's just really neat to see an interview with him and him being so strong to talk about, you know, this is... Essentially, he's talking about the UFO phenomenon. It's a real phenomenon deserving of study that could reveal, you know, uh, some technology that we could use here on our planet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the makeup of this to the stars team is just so incredibly interesting. Wow. Yeah, uh, I've heard of this Mensa before. And, yeah, International High IQ Society. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, yeah. Interesting, and wouldn't it be fascinating if uh, more people um, like that, you know, at least try to investigate and take this topic serious? You know, I just think it's a great thing. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, it's really cool. So, uh, you know, someone else who's writing articles about this topic is, is this guy. Um, oh man, I can't remember his first name. I think you may have seen it, Danny. I think it is Silva. Uh, he has this website called The Silver Record, and uh, it's it's fun, these people popping up that are uh, working on this sort of thing. But he did a great article just the other day called A-Tip Did Not End, and I think that's really important. And the reason I bring it up is it fits perfect. This article from Menza says that, the, that A-Tip no longer exists, that it was funded or that it existed until 2012, and that is wrong. Now, the DOD did say that at one point, but what they mm-hmm. said was funding ended in 2012. Um, and Elizondo uh, has said, well, okay, but the program did not end in 2012. And so Silva has actually documented very well, you know, uh, all of Elizondo and other people's uh, reference to this issue to demonstrate that it does continue. Um, in fact, how, mm-hmm. uh, pardon me, um, how would something like that carry on with lack of funding? Uh, well, a uh, couple answers to that question. With uh, one of the things that he references are slides that, uh, and you were there at, at Elizondo's talk at MUFON. And one of the bullet points on those slides says from 2013 through 2014, a new funding vehicle under joint ISR is created and intended to bolster a tip effect. Um, efforts. I'm not completely sure what that means, but it seems like they got some funding uh, at least those years from another outlet. But the other thing is that I asked Elizondo that exactly on our uh, UFO Congress interview with him, and he said that, well, the way it worked is that they were able to um, work with other programs. The example he gave is there's a program looking at what's, you know, looking at the sky, looking for missiles 
for from North Korea or North Korea missile tests. And so what he could do is go to that program and say, have you observed objects that fit this criteria? And then they would be able to give him that data and then they can analyze it. So that data was, uh, you know, obtained through the budget of this North Korean observation program. Uh, so that's how they were able to to operate. Mm. And when this uh, this Silva uh, on the record or whatever you said his his website does he does he do people speculate now that this is ongoing presently or I mean where does that where does that land as far as well what's uh, happening it is according to Elizondo it is ongoing currently um, uh. that's what he has said and he has told me that uh, they are very high-level people running the organization currently. Um, hmm. And it's something I suppose we may find out about uh, eventually. Hopefully, you know, maybe they'll come out about it. But, uh, yeah, according to him, yes, they're, it's still running. And it's under high-level, you know, his successor, someone very um, – with a lot of credibility – I remember when I spoke to uh, Stanton Friedman shortly after this happened, he said his very first question is, why now? Why are they talking about it now? Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really good question. Yeah, well, and we at least we, we pretty much have that answer. At least George mm -hmm. Knapp gave it to me in that interview in that it was it was sort of an issue of timing, I guess, just like everything is. Uh, I think it yeah. gets revisited periodically but in this case it was that DOD or DE agent um, I think it was a DIA agent who went to Skinwalker Ranch and had an experience and then went uh, back to Washington in 2005 and told Harry Reid hey we need to investigate this stuff officially Harry Reid said you're right and that's how it all began mm. interesting yes very isn't really it really cool stuff Yes. So another story that's kind of interesting, we've talked about, you know, going back to Mars. And uh, we were talking about just earlier, you know, uh, life on Mars and the Mars robot. But uh, and this isn't too surprising, but uh, a lot of people will talk about Mars One because there has been this, you know, people talking about it. These guys were supposed to be taking people to Mars uh, and they spent a lot of money on marketing. In oh, yeah. Fact, they spent all of their mar money on marketing. It really <laughs> was pretty much a sham. It was never yeah. real, but it was this huge marketing effort where they're like, oh, mm -hmm. we're going to have a TV show. It's going to be like Big Brother, and that's what's going to fund it is a TV show, but uh, we're going to send people to Mars and watch them, and, which is really scary. It was a one-way trip. These people right. will never come back. And surprisingly, they got a ton of volunteers. I can't believe it. Do you know how many there were? I, I, I can't remember. There were a lot, though. Like I know. I was lot. shocked by that. Yeah. And some of these are scientists. Mm-hmm. A one-way trip. And you're going to trust these people who don't know what the heck they're doing at all. They have no viable, like, a real plan. So they finally went bankrupt and went under. But um, no one really thought they were going to go anywhere anyway. Mm, well, right. Except for those poor people who went and, <laughs> you know, applied and went through the whole process. I remember some people were just saying it was a suicide mission, and it very well could have ended up, you know, being that. 
Oh, it was. It was totally a suicide mission. I mean, yeah, it was a one-way trip in so many ways that uh, mm. it was really ridiculous. Right, right. Wow. One other story in the news is uh, pilots baffled as they see UFOs over, and maybe you'll know how to say this. This is a word that comes up, um, and I've never been able to pronounce it, and I so much apologize to our friends in the UK, uh, Gloucestershire. Uh, Gloucestershire. I think it's Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. All right. I'll have to look at the spelling, but I think that's how it. I, I think it's spelled gloss. Uh, pronounced gloss, Gloucester, Gloucester, and then, even though it looks like Gloucester. Hmm. But there was a sighting in this area over the M5, which is a you know a highway out there where uh, these pilots even saw uh, this object and reported it. Um, so they described it as unidentified nocturnal lights. But this just happened the other day. Um, this is what Air Midwest had said, and they tweeted this. They said, this has been, there's been a lot of interest in the fact that our pilots observed UFOs last night during night flying exercises. So here's a brief summary of the situation. Event, unidentified airborne nocturnal lights. Location, south of Gloucester. Gloucester. That's pretty good. Yeah. Gloucester. Yeah. (laughs) And um, they said, our aircraft approached the lights on an interception track, but were unable to gain as on the object as they appeared to move further south of Gloucestershire. At our aircraft, as our aircraft approached, we were unable to identify the lights. Um, and if you look at these lights, they're really, really peculiar. It looks a triangle formation. Mm-hmm. The the center light looks what you often hear about, sort of an amber color, and the offset lights look. Uh, very strange. Yeah. Uh, almost hard to describe. Almost like an object instead of a light. Yeah, really Sil- interesting. Silvery. Mm. In fact, I'm going to try to read this. we got two minutes. I'm going to try to read this quickly. Pilot describes his encounter. I observed initially two large square orange lights, one on top of each but slightly offset. However, there was a gap in height between them. The top mm. orb was constantly orange. The lower one occasionally flicked white but majority of time was orange in addition to that on two occasions i observed fire orange lights but that were momentary Uh, i initially observed them when leaving birmingham control zone i thought they were just south of gloucestershire and definitely a lot higher than us we climbed to five thousand feet and see they seemed level at that height and stationary as we approach gloucestershire it became apparent they were now further south, maybe beyond Bristol, even as far as Weston Supermare, but directly south of Gloucestershire Airport. On our return leg to EGBO, our home base by Worcestershire, we climbed 7,000 feet and commenced a turn to observe the lights. At this point, they seem lower than us and stationary. I have no idea what these objects were, night glow balloons? but unlikely as they do not move very fast at all. So what were they? We have no idea. An interesting event. Wow. I wondered if they checked to see if there was anything showing up on radar. Yeah, I don't remember seeing anything uh, regarding that on this story, but uh, this is a yeah, pretty interesting sighting here. And the image of it, um, did does it talk about that, them 
either filming or uh well or the image says picture. a previous sighting of a UFO in the area. <laughs> so that image okay. <laughs> doesn't appear to have been from that incident. Aha. Uh-huh. Cuz when I pulled the story that picture came up. So see, you got to well, do your homework, your I research. Know. And that yeah. happens a lot where they yeah. use stock footage. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. Well, we're out of time. Thank you uh, for joining us once again for the news, Martin. Hey, it's always a pleasure here, sir. Yep. Enjoy Florida. Yeah, it's a lot. It's warm. It's hot. Good. Degrees. Yeah. Good, good, because it's cold everywhere else. That sounds awesome. Well, mm-hmm. uh, enjoy yourself, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. You bet. All right. Talk to you next week. All right. Let's go ahead and speak with John Alexander right after this break. I'm very happy to welcome back to the show, John Alexander. Welcome back. Well, glad to be here. So, uh, it's exciting to talk to you, especially right now, because uh, more you're kind of one of the men behind the scenes, but you have been involved with all of the exciting stuff going on uh, right now, especially with you know news from ATIP and little pieces of information coming out. Um, so it's exciting to talk to you again. Yeah, it, it's good. Um, good to see you last week, too. We're there in uh, Phoenix. Yes, exactly. And that's what I want to talk about is some of the important stuff that you brought up in your talk, um, especially around, you know, I think the future of where we want uh, all of this to go. But uh, to start off, you did share kind of an interesting story about uh, Nick Pope and his father and kind of this conversation you had with uh, his uh, father's boss, essentially. But you were also making a point with this story. So I was wondering if you could share that. Sure. Um, yeah. First of all, Nick and I basically agree in our experiences with uh, what he had within uh, MOD and I had with uh, you know the advanced theoretical physics uh, uh, project um, but uh, anyway because of that uh, this was my second career I was at Los Alamos and I got a word that uh, the um, uh, chief scientific advisor from the MOD uh, um, Oxbra was going to come and visit. And uh, so uh, we we had a very good talk. Uh, and it was interesting, just the two of us. So we were um, discussing basically non-lethal weapons because nobody had told me what the topic was. That, and uh, so after he left, he says, boy, you really blew that. I said, well, how's that? He said, he wanted hmm. to talk about UFOs. Um, so, oh, well, why didn't he say something? We were alone in the room. We could have changed the topic easily. So, uh, a couple of years later, uh, he had retired and become, um, uh, head of a university there in London. And I was involved in a NATO study. So I went to see him. And, um, so this time we were talking about UFOs. He was asking questions. And so I said, well, 
oh, why didn't you ask Nick Pope about this? And he goes, Nicky? Why, Nicky's father was my deputy. And um, it turns out that Nick's father, Jeff Pope, is uh, an extraordinary uh, aerospace engineer. He was uh, actually the um, uh, director at Farnborough, which is well-known. And in fact, in uh, the University of Exeter now, there is a, a building called the Jeffrey Pope Building. And as I said, he was known on both sides of the pond, uh, so to speak. And uh, so I asked Nick about it when I found, you know, I mentioned this to him. And he said, yes, he said he, he had talked to his father. And his, his, the father's response was, if we had one, it would have been in my hangar. And that was referring to when he had uh, Ornborough. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to add one of my main points here is that, you know, here you have the chief scientific advisor for the entire MOD with an interest in the topic. And yes, Nick was assigned there, you know, on, on that desk. And yet the twins didn't meet. I think it says something about the level of visibility. Mm-hmm. And, and, Sort of your point also in that, um, you know, and I think a lot of people, especially in this field, don't get this. The government is a large kind of entity with many, many different branches and departments that, you know, not everybody knows what's going on or is necessarily in cahoots with whatever else is going on within other branches of the government. Well, that's absolutely correct. Uh, but um, I know in the UFO community, they think, you know, this is the ultra-secret uh, thing and only, uh, you know, key people uh, are involved. Um, now, and here's a case where, you know, the chief scientific advisor is one that you would think would be involved if anybody was. Um, and expressing, you know, his personal interest in the topic, and yet uh, did not even know what was going on, and, and could easily have asked. And uh, you know, so my point is, yeah, Nick actually did have the desk, was doing investigations, um, and I'm sure within the air branch where he was, that there were some people who were interested, but um, th- this was not a front burner uh, issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, when the big revelation came out in um, uh, 2017, December, and they mentioned it, and that uh, Lou Alessandro, who actually knew General Mattis, who you know, was then the Secretary of Defense, and apparently Mattis learned about it like 30 minutes before it went to press. And that's another interesting point, uh, and that's what it, it makes me think of, it, is that we kind of had the, this post-discovery you know, uh, or revelation of uh, Lou Elizondo's ATIP organization, um, and it, it's similar. It seems as though, especially with these briefings that have come out, and you know, that's some of the documents that Nick Pope was able to get, uh, that the Federation of American scientists were able to get kind of this letter where people are asking, who is ATIP? You know, who are these guys? And um, as much of uh, 
it was kind of a surprise to the public. It seems to be to uh, different branches of the government where now they are asking. And these committees and Congress are even having people like David Fravor come in to talk to them. Yeah, well, I said uh, I said there's good news and there's bad news. And one of my slides says that uh, the government doesn't know what the government knows. Which gets <laughs> to your point of you know big organizations, but uh, you know the caveat is mostly they don't care. Um, it's not that you don't have a few individuals, uh, some who are intensely uh, interested. Uh, and many others who are not, and they just get caught up in their day-to-day business. And one of my main points is that personal interest does not translate to institutional interest, meaning they don't bring that uh, personal interest uh, into their job. I think I have told a number of times a story. I was uh, briefing a uh, retired three-star who was the head of, or had been the head of one of those three-letter agencies. And uh, we don't, he, his response was, he says, A, we don't do that. There are no requirements for us to look into it. But B, I'll tell you about the ones I saw. So here you had the head of an agency who had his personal sighting of something that happened a number of years prior. Uh, and he said, I saw things flying around that, you know, the aerodynamics just defied anything uh, that we had. But he did not then take that back and, you know, to his agency and say, now you got to collect information on it. Uh, so it can say that's a different. And I might say there's some pluses here because you do hit uh, people who come in with certain religious beliefs. That, uh, and that's been pro and con. By the way, that's hurt uh, several programs. Does work. Directly to uh, UFOs, and I have heard that it uh, happened in the ATEP uh, program as well. And that is, uh, you're not supposed to deal with these uh, because the, um, you know, this is demonic forces, and therefore we should not be uh, involved at all. Mm-hmm. So there's a and lot. Again, it, um... That's a classic example of personal beliefs versus institutional responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a great point. And, and as you pointed out, because a lot of people, especially in, in our community, are kind of maybe scratching their head. Well, how can this person have these experiences but not do something about it? But uh, as you also highlighted, there's a lot that the government has on their plate. Oh, well, that's, you know, we have now been at war for uh, last, uh, since at least 2001. Uh, we're $22 trillion in debt. Uh, and, uh, so you start looking at all of the things that are going on. One of my main issues from a military perspective, we now have the people who have been involved in combat longer or three times longer than anybody in world war two. And within a few months, we're going to have people who have who entered the war in 2001 and are now retiring and they've never known anything but war. Well, and another thing you pointed out, which I think is, is uh, 
important for people to realize as as much as you know people are are passionate about this topic that for instance like you pointed out you know the ufo congress has a great attendance but nothing like comic-con that has a thousand times more people uh, or some of right. these other you know where people's interests lay uh, what they're interested in and they're not you know, it, it, you know it's not as pressing well, an issue for the general public yeah, and one of the problems is, you know, this is a, a small community that talks to itself and believes that it's much bigger than it really is. The vast majority of people believe that UFOs are real. That is not a question. The mm-hmm. question then becomes, you know, how much interest are you going to pay? And that uh, we really have not, um, we've not seen that. The Comic-Con one you mentioned, uh, their height was 167,000 people. To wow. Talk about comic books. Mm-hmm. And you said, I think, was it a, a music concert that had something like millions of people in India? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, um, there was a music conference uh, uh, that I, I had never heard of. I don't really follow rock, but, you know, four million people with that uh, specific one. Uh, there is something called Kumela, um, which is the Siddhus get together um the the massive conference every uh, 12 years and we were there and they will get 30 to 40 million people uh the day we were in the Godavari river there were at least 4 million people at uh, at that point mm-hmm. so it's, yeah it's, you know it, it kind of points to what real interest uh, looks like by the way, one other thing that I, I just slide I did have, I don't know if you caught it, that's interesting, because I went back and I looked at um, uh, the number of flag officers, that means generals and, and admirals, uh, since a blue book. And roughly, there's been about 6,000 in that time. That's a, kind of a rough estimate. And I'm assuming that they are like the normal public. And so let's use the 10% of people who believe that they've seen a UFO. If that's true, then about 600 of those uh, generals and admirals would have had personal experience. So my question then becomes not, why do these studies pop up periodically, but why aren't there a lot more? Mm-hmm. And what would be your guess to why there aren't a lot more? Uh, well... Basically, I think that the um, uh, military as an institution is is actually risk aversive. Yes, there are individuals who will you know go out and explore some wild, wonderful things, uh, but they don't like to be embarrassed. And some of the issues are that uh, what are you going to do when you get from a resource perspective? Let's talk about money and things like that. Uh, you have a one-to-end priority list. You have certain things that you're required to do. Uh, if you look at it seriously, you say, you know, have looked at this before and really don't have a lot of answers. Well, what percent of your resources are you willing to put into a topic that you have a low probability of, um, you know, getting serious answers? I did have a slide where I compared the project that I ran, uh, the advanced theoretical uh, project, uh, with the ATIP one. 
And basically, everything was the same with a couple of exceptions. Um, and that is that uh, he was quite successful in getting at least a limited amount of funding uh, and for funding. And remember, by Pentagon standards, $22 million over five years is, we're not talking lunch money even, um, mm-hmm. and limited institutional interest, but no solution. And the, the technical things that were observed, yeah, yeah, we knew that already. For $22 million, what you got was um, a few more studies, some you know, good reports on that, but I don't think we got much closer to any solution. So, and I want to get into that part. So the advanced theoretical uh, project or advanced theoretical physics project that you, ATP that you worked on. Now that was not official, correct? Correct. It was ad hoc. It was something that uh, I put together with others. We had uh, people from all of the services uh, involved. We also had the intelligence community and uh, aerospace. And it was a group of kind of like-minded people that said, you know, let's go forward. Um, and did ran this for a, a number of years and then tried to transition it. Uh, this was the days of SDI. And, and this is where Alessandro was successful and I was not. Now, he did it through Congress. Um, and I was looking for uh, existing funds um, I might mention that for those who don't remember, it was then known as Star Wars, uh, was the biggest program in the Department of Defense, uh, about $5 billion over a few years there. So really, really big program. And we got to meet with the uh, director, uh, who was uh, Jim uh, Abramson, uh, Lieutenant General uh, at the time. And uh, first of all, he didn't... <laughs> One of the interesting things we started, and I had brought in representatives from several agencies, and specifically the Air Force, because it, you know he was an Air Force general. And you know when we started talking, because I let it off, and he and then he stopped me and said, "Well, wait, wait a minute, who are you guys really?" <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I'm hard, not hardly believing what I'm hearing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when done, he said, "Well, he got my interest." I'd be willing, if you can tell me what to look for, I'm willing to put it into algorithms. Um, Because one of our points was that Star Wars was on a hair trigger and you didn't want to accidentally start World War III. Um, And uh, he said, yeah, but as far as funding, I, I can't go that far. He said, if I get caught doing that, and he says, I'm already doing, you know, pressing the limit uh, as much as I can. But if I get caught in, in the UFO arena, you know, they're going to really take my money. And the assumption there would be that, uh, you know, if you're doing these kinds of things, you're not a good steward of uh, funding. So, Another thing that you brought up, which is, uh, I mean, all of these are really great points in that, you know, your ATP and we'll talk more about how it was similar to ATIP. Um, but like you said, ATIP actually got some some real funding, but uh, barely, it seems like. I mean, it, it was barely official in that it, it kind of, the way Lou describes it, they work on it on the side. 
Um, yeah, yeah, everybody, just so you know, I mean, our, our rules were you weren't supposed to keep records. Apparently a few people do because I've seen some things that have appeared. Um, and I did have a set of briefing slides that, that I kept. But everybody paid their own way. Now, yeah, the institutions do it. So, and and I've seen recently some nonsense uh, on the internet that uh, we were a five million dollar program. That was never true. Mm-hmm. Well, and that may stem from a problem. This Howard Bloom book, which is so frustrating because uh, yeah. it's just completely false. It, it, it appears that they're they're referring to the ATP as the UFO working group, which was headed up by a general, all of which is false. No, no. I know the general involved, uh, Uh and the point was we did brief him once, and there was a very high-level science board meeting, and he did come in and talk to it. Uh, He did not have any direct uh, interaction with us. There was then something called the IC staff, or the Intelligence Community staff, which was before... Uh, the uh, what was called the NIC, the National Intelligence Council, and what then became the Director of National Intelligence after uh, you know 9/11. Um, but well, not only that, but uh, I was told that uh, I don't know if you know Seymour Hersh, uh, who did you know he was famous for Milai and some other cases, and he is the one who put um, you know, them onto the story and the point was i think he told him there's some really strange things going on in the pentagon he picked up on this and and what hirsch meant was the remote viewing program which was uh, still classified at that time so he even got the entire story wrong Hmm. and uh he never got a hold of you right uh or did he well actually um did call me and uh, we did not have a conversation. Hmm. I refused to document. Okay. And at that time, were you working on the remote viewing program? No, no, I was, um, I was at Los Alamos at that juncture. Mm-hmm. And I guess another reason that uh, you're an important person to talk to is that, that you have worked on, let's say exotic programs. Um, that uh, could be controversial inside that. Mm-hmm. What you mean by exotic, my last assignment on active duty before I retired was director of advanced system concepts uh, for the Army Laboratory Command. And so uh, we were doing a lot of things in, uh, well, among things, the tactical directed energy uh, lasers, uh, microwaves, uh, uh, EMP kinds of things. Um, I had uh, a lot of advanced uh, sensor systems, precision-guided munitions, advanced communication systems. Um, now, when I left and went to the lab, if you're referring to what we did in non-lethal weapons, which is pretty straightforward, but also you know, conjures up a lot of nonsense as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I might mention, mm-hmm. as recently as yesterday, I got a call from uh, some individual. I have no idea who it is, wanting to know about psychotronic weapons and how they were classified. And uh, no, the government doesn't deal with that. But uh, that that gets you into a 
Ja, Motherfield. That, that is controversial. And, mm-hmm. I don't know if the topic we want to get into, but it's uh, basically not real. Okay, the psychotronic type of stuff. That's where it's like shooting frequencies at people to, to make them feel emotions. Is that what that is? Um, it runs, this is where you get into the whole field of what they call targeted individuals who believe the government has been, uh, you know, screwing with their minds and whatnot. Mm. And it, I mean, the range of programs that you hear about are just, you know, it, it's hard to explain. I can't tell you, I was, uh, at a conference in Germany uh, on non-lethal weapons and we actually got picketed. And they had to have the uh, Pulitzer come in and, uh, you know, pr- protect the meeting because uh, we, they were wanting us to, uh, you know, admit that. My very first one, I was hosting at uh, John Hopkins uh, University, and uh, people came in and wanted us to hold a moment of silence for the 50,000 people we had killed in uh, high-power microwave experiments. You know, like, you know, just... Recognize that's the number of people who died, uh, Americans who died in the uh, whole Vietnam War, and supposedly had been terminated in experiments. So, just, mm-hmm. say, there are there are no lower limits to crazy. <laughs> right, that's for sure. Um, but you did work with, and you were close with uh, General Stubblebine as well, who worked on kind of what psychic warfare. Oh, yeah. When uh, yeah, Bert Subline was the uh, commanding general of the uh, Army Intelligence and Security Commander, INSCOM, and at that juncture, the program was best now known by his last name, Stargate, was on. Uh, but I was also working things with uh, psychokinesis, uh, one of the metal bending. We'd seen what Uri Geller had done, and uh, Jack Houck, who was an aerospace engineer at McDonnell Douglas, had developed a process uh, whereby we could uh, replicate that and have what have been known as PK parties. Mm-hmm. So with that, and uh, there's also some interesting things with uh, Cleve Baxter, and uh, I, I have written to uh, a number of these uh, topics. In fact, in the most recent book, um, reality denied. I have chapters on several of those topics from PK and stuff we did with, I'd call white cells matter that uh, we did with Cleve Baxter, uh, the Hutchison effect. We did work with John Hutchison. Saw some unusual things, but just couldn't control it. Mm-hmm. So we've got to take a break right now. We're going to be back to talk more about these topics and how they relate to ATIP. Um, And we're with John Alexander, so stay tuned. We are back. You're listening to Open Mind UFO Radio. I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and we have John Alexander on, a very unique individual who's, uh, you know, I think a crux at this moment when we've got this uh, important conversation, I think, going around ATIP. And we were just uh, talking about a little earlier the advanced uh, theoretical physics group that you had, kind of your ad hoc group that you had put together 
However, uh, your name, Advanced Theoretical Physics, first of all, your acronym is ATP, similar to uh, ATIP, uh, just drawing similarities here, but uh, yours was, was, like you said, ad hoc, it wasn't necessarily funded, but why did you kind of, there's no UFO in the term ATP, uh, and why is that? <laughs> yeah, well, what had happened is, uh, remember, we're now talking early 1980s, and shortly before that, something called FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, had come into uh, existence. Um, one of the things not known is that about 50% of the FOIA requests, in other words, you had to respond to how the government was doing things, uh, was on UFOs. Um, I did not want to deal with that, and so uh, I thought few people would be asking about uh, uh, advanced theoretical physics. So it was, <laughs> it was just a way, literally, to intentionally avoid FOIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's similar, I mean, kind of a similar reason, uh, it seems, that uh, Harry Reid or others have described why they chose acronyms such as ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat. But the threat part also kind of harkens back to funding and how they justify funding, yeah. right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, again, very few people understand how the government really works. Uh, I point out that when I was an uh, inspector general, I went in as a lieutenant colonel, and there were lots of us, and they had all come from command general staff college, war college, uh, you know, 15 to 20 years experience, and yet our boss, uh, General Treffrey, was a three-star who was the inspector general, had to set up a program to teach colonels how the government works. <laughs> So if you take that out in the civilian sector, you can imagine how far afield uh, it gets. So, um, you know, the uh, understanding how they don't, I think, is, you know, critical. Um, and, you know, I, I do talk about the uh, paradox in which uh, Washington, uh, you know, the great puzzle palace, we think they're uh, virtually incompetent in all topics except UFOs where they're omniscient. <laughs> you know, planes just don't seem to come together there. And so when it comes to, uh, you know, the naming or uh, of an organization, you're kind of then mm -hmm. hearkening back to the mission, and really it's that mission that's getting funded. You, you have to justify it. the money. This goes to Congress, and you, you know the big fight that's going on you know, as we speak over the, the wall funding. And the issue, uh, the bottom line, is that the institutions that the money comes from uh, have got to relate exactly to that, and you have to justify it going in. Uh, most people don't know that uh, you know, when Congress... Uh, provides money. There's two bills, and one is the uh, authorization or appropriations bill. In other words, they say, okay, X amount of money is available, but then it has to go to the authorizations committee that says, now you can spend it. And so you use that, and in the you write up the things that you uh, submit, uh, you have to tell them exactly what areas uh, you're going to work, and you have to tie it to, you know, the institutional mission, you know, 
the Defense Department is just that. It's, you know, for the defense of the country. So, therefore, we do threat. I'll give you a downside of it, though. Um, and this is, you know, again, the real world. Back in the bad old days, Soviet Union was still intact. And so we were doing things to justify funding. And being in the military, we looked at an armor, anti-armor threat, and we were projecting where the, the Soviets were going to go. This is Soviet Union still. And we had something called FST-3, or Future Soviet Tank 3, and, you know, it had all kinds of capability. Now, it never came into existence. Um, no. So from a UFO perspective, yeah, and that's what's happening. And we have seen and had interactions uh, with UFOs, you know, since well, at least World War II, um, and yet have not had capabilities that can match anything that we're observing. Um, and so... The way you would approach that, if you want funding, which is exactly what they did, and it is the same thing that I did, it's just I was not successful, and to say, here's the threat, we need to do something uh, about that. Mm -hmm. I point out that there is no department of good ideas, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and if you look at all of the things that are researched, you need to get into... uh, you know, National Science Foundation and uh, any of the, or the national laboratories. Um, you have a lot of projects uh, out there when you say, you know, let's look at cancer and things like that. And say, you got one damn uh, list of things to do. Uh, you're going to run out of money long before you get to uh, end. So which ones are you going to choose to fund? Mm-hmm. And it's highly competitive even in what you know, your listening audience would call the black world, you know, there's competition there as well. And those funds can kind of get stolen, or at least reappropriated in that, hey, I've got a mission that is, is along the lines of what this has been earmarked for, so I'm going to fight for that money. Uh, and the yep. wall situation right now is similar in that, you know, that's what the president's going for. He's going for all of the immigration money from a lot of different departments like the military. Yeah, but that's a huge strap. That's the MCA account, military construction account. Um, and it was, you know, the problem there is it was really designed to uh, support the billeting and, uh, and comfort of, of the troops. And that's where you'll be taking it away from, uh, getting a bit political there. But, um you know, those are the kinds of fights that you do have. Um, I'm understanding that the ATIP program, one of the issues that came up there is there was a small part of money. Uh, other elements looked at that and said, I do advance threats. Went after a million understanding, got it. Mm-hmm. Which are some of these problems? Um, so you've got, you know, the risk aversion where, you know, this this very which is limiting because there's they're limited in what they're going to want to look at. You have the, the budgeting issue in um, framing it. And then, you know, the vulnerability that the, the, the funding could be still on the way, especially if you're not seen as a productive uh, well, project. Well, one of the things uh, we talked about before we went on the air that I think is worth bringing up 
And that is, do you really want the government involved in these areas? No. One of the things I've said is we're looking at phenomena, and I do look at them in a broad base, not just UFOs, but as you know, I get into uh, near-death experience, post-mortem communication, cyberkinesis, walking, cryptozoology, the whole bit. And I do think that they are interconnected at a uh, some fundamental level, which is really tough. Is that, A, the government's responsibility, and do you want them? What do they bring? Well, I think the things they bring, they obviously have some really good sensors, and many of them have picked up UFOs, uh, certainly. you got some brain power because you do have national laboratories and credible witnesses and things. But you also have, as we were just discussing, the risk aversion and the propensity to classify, which makes it, you know, I think absolutely the wrong way to go uh, in these areas. Understand why you do it. You know, knowledge is power, classification. You can put it in boxes and keep it away uh, from others. But uh, I don't think that it is uh, the most propitious way to go about solving this terribly, terribly complex uh, issue. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to NASA, uh, they are even more risk, uh, or at least uh, aversive, I think, than, than probably because I well, think their public uh, platform than other agencies. In general, not only are they aversive, they're overtly hostile uh, mm-hmm. in these areas. And I point to the work that uh, Richard Hoover did. Um, you know, where he went out and made a, a uh, wrote an article, was invited to a conference just to talk about the potential of unicellular life, something he had picked up from uh, uh, meteorites in Antarctica. And bottom line was, had to retire in order to present the information. They were not going to allow him to uh, discuss it publicly. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I... I this is an important topic to look at because we do have these uh, congressional subcommittees looking at the UFO topic now, and there's a lot of movement going on. As we can see, you know, at least with uh, John McCain and his office, you know, asking about what's going on with ATIP, uh, and then these interviews with actual very credible witnesses like David Fravor. So where is this all headed is the question and uh, if people are getting excited or not about another government program looking into this or perhaps getting more funding, is that necessarily going to be helpful is the big question. Yeah, you know, um, briefly, I briefly touched on what I think is needed. And my proposal is to look at it sort of like the human genome prom, uh, program, uh, which came in uh not only on time, it was ahead of schedule and under budget, and it was $3 billion. But the approach to that was to have a multinational approach. You had universities from all over the world all integrated and sharing data. And the problem, even in the UFO community, and one of the things I have suggested and told the numbers are about right, I said, if we looked at all of the research uh, programs, not just UFOs now. We're talking about, you know, um, remote viewing and, um, you know, postmortem stuff, life after death, um, maybe $10 million a year. 
which is minuscule, but the problem is that in the funding, even within those communities, they jealously guard their funding and the information. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, rather than sharing information, there's a propensity to, you know, cluster it. Right. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like, I mean, if we're looking for where to go next, if this, if this, I guess, you know, momentum is to continue and more and more, there's more and more interest by mainstream science, maybe even, or the public, uh, what would be the best next uh, option? Of course, we have now to the stars. And do you think that's the best kind of route? Maybe private organizations or maybe even uh, educational institutions picking up uh, some research in this area? Well, but if if you look at that, they did go public and ask for investment. And I haven't looked lately. I know they're under $3 million and we're hovering around two and a half million dollars, and that's with a couple of years involved, and some really good people. Uh, that's one of the key issues. I mean, you're getting serious scientists who want to look at these things. Um, you still have uh, great resistance. Uh, you know, media is mixed. They like uh, wild and wonderful stories like mm-hmm. ATIP uh, coming out, but when you get individual reports, it's still a ho, 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 you know, well, if you believe, um, and like I said, one of my personal agendas, try to make it more permissible for serious scientists to look into this without risking their uh, reputation or livelihood. Mm-hmm. And you'll get some you know, very serious people who get attacked. Uh, and if you're in the scientific community and having to rely on uh, grants, for instance, uh, your personal reputation is directly related to whether or not uh, that's going to be viable. So uh, I've had many people, you know, and even as uh, on the National Academy of Sciences, where I've worked with uh, on the study, um, say, you know, I'm interested, you know, tell me about it, but you know, don't use my name. Right. And, and, you know, we hear a lot about that. And, uh, and, you know, one of the phrases scientists seem to be really terrified of is that term UFO, um, because they're, they have this risk aversion kind of, uh, attitude as well. And, and their risk is, is funding or respectability with their colleagues. Very much. That is a key issue. I do mention, uh, at the forward of my UFO book, I mentioned a guy by the name of Dean Judd, who um, he was the uh, technical director for SDI, we discussed before Star Wars. He was also the NIO, or the National Intelligence Officer for Science and Technology uh, on the IC staff, uh, very well placed, a personal friend. We spent hours and hours and hours discussing these sorts of things. And I never used his real name until, you know, after he died. Because, you know, I wanted to maintain the issues of credibility. We had sat on boards together, and some of them, in the, well, he was on the uh, NIDS uh, Science Advisory Board. Uh, we've been on others as well. But not where they wanted their name out there associated with these projects because they are multidisciplinary and look at a broad range, and this is an area that, uh, you know, can stain you. We've 
talked about what a scientific American did to me, but um, you know, just uh, kind of a, an example of a problem of guilt by association. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this term advanced theoretical physics, what's interesting about that term is that, uh, in a way, it, I mean, you all did do that sort of thing. And, and when, you know, in these recent documents that re- re- revealed, you know, the, the dirge for ATIP, a lot of those, if not all of them, were theoretical physics. Yeah, it's a way to go. I mean, we had one of my very first slides, which goes back into the 80s, and why would you do this? And part of it was to look at having a significant leap uh, in technology because the the observations that we were seeing, you know, extreme acceleration, high G turns, etc., things that humans could not survive. And say, you know, if we understand that you have a model for what you're looking for and a model that says it can, in fact, be done, uh, it helps considerably in the you know, scientific approach. Mm-hmm. And another question is, uh, speaking of those dirge, so there have been those who have said, well, those are all advanced theoretical physics. It would make sense if, you know, um, aer- anomalous aer- or aerospace, advanced aerospace, foreign threats is what they were looking at. So in these documents uh, that we received, that Nick, you know, received and, and others, there's no evidence that they looked into UFOs at all. Of course, Elizondo is telling us something differently, but these people are saying, well, how can we trust him? What would you say? Uh, has anybody approached you with this question, and, and how would you answer that? Well, if you, I, I think the Nimitz case is one, and is one of several, but it's one that uh, brings it to the fore, that that's exactly what they were looking at, uh, and some other areas. And one of the things, again, one of my first slides that I use all the time is the interrelationship between a wide range of uh, topics. Um, one we haven't hit on, you know, usually get into is, uh, quote, abductions and things. And, and my point there is that there are reports of interactions between humans and sentient non-humans throughout the entirety of human history and in every culture uh, in the world. And that, uh, you know, that they happen to fly in and little metal vessels uh, is actually a pretty new wrinkle to it. Hmm. But it's, like I say, it's terribly, terribly complex. And uh, I I have problems when people say it's little gray guys from Zeta Reticuli. Um, Not because they didn't have some kind of interaction, but just because that's too simple. Mm Mm-hmm. And a great point to that, because now that we're kind of running out of time and to wrap it up, is your latest book, Reality Denied, Firsthand Experiences with Things That Can't Happen But Did. But you're talking about a number of different phenomena, and um, you're beginning to feel, or maybe you felt this for a long time, that all of this, a lot of this phenomena, including the UFOs and possibly even, you know, uh, other entities, or like you call them, what? Sentient non-human intelligence. Yes, yeah. sentient non-human intelligence. They could all be interrelated somehow. I'm sure it is. Mm-hmm. With advanced physics, perhaps. Oh, yeah. I mean, what we're seeing is certainly advanced, and uh, there, there are very physical uh, 
elements to it, thus physics gets involved. Right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I think all of this is just really important. We we almost need a, a, some sobering that if, you know, uh, as a community of people who are interested in this topic, uh, if we are to begin interfacing with the mainstream science and government more, then we have to do it more in a more educated way. And I, I that, for me, means all of these topics that you're bringing up are really important and they're becoming more and more important as this visibility to this topic, you know, arises. May you live in interesting times. <laughs> yes. How dare you? Um, but it's definitely coming true. All right. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Okay. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you so much to John for being on the show once again. I love to have him on because he's such a wealth of information, and I was going from topic to topic because I wanted to get all of these uh, separate, very important points that he made at this recent talk at Phoenix MUFON out because right now this conversation is so important, especially as we see, you know, this this guy who ran this government program coming out and talking to the public Uh in the UFO community, there's doubters. In the wider community, interesting enough, they are more receptive to what Mr. Elizondo has to say. Uh, and, and it is really important. And I think that this aspect is important because the wider audience is the culture in general. You know, it, it, these are where the real cultural change and shifts happen. And we're in the middle of one. And John Alexander is important because he was the guy before this cultural shift was happening Inside the Army, uh, he worked for Army Intelligence, and when he was doing this kind of work with, you know, the paranormal, essentially, in the Army, he was a, a go-to guy at, for some of these topics inside. And so he knows how all of that works, how uh, the budgetary issues work, uh, why and how funding happens in this arena. And these are all really important topics as we talk to these very important uh, ex-government officials about this. And uh, one of those people, of course, being Nick Pope, who we talked to recently, who worked in the UK government. Now, some people have questioned whether or not there was truly a UFO to Department in the Ministry of Defense. But we do know for a fact, and the MOD has said this many times, that they did investigate UFO cases up until 2008, and that's what Nick Pope did for them for a period of time. And he has actually worked with them in uh, getting documents released, although more recently the documents he got least were from the U.S. government that talked about these theoretical physics papers that came out of ATIP. And, uh, and so I think this is really important. Uh, also, the mirroring of what John Alexander did with ATP and what uh, Lou Elizondo did with ATIP is, is very important also because we do see the reason the certain verbiage is used, why they use the verbiage threat, uh, why they use terms like advanced physics as opposed to UFO, and, uh, you know, some of the other terms you'll hear is UAP, but we learn why officially you want to keep it quiet exactly what your project is, or at least the UFO portions, because of this risk aversion. And we talked about NASA 
um, having essentially the most risk risk aversion. That's why they're going to attack because uh, they don't want to be associated with this hot potato UFO at all because it has a very negative connotation. And more and more you see, you know, some of these credible organizations such as ATIP using these terms UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or others. In fact, you have this scientific group, the Scientific Coalition uh, for Ufology, using the term anomalous aerospace phenomena, a new term, AAP, uh, which is a good one. So uh, a lot of really interesting things happening, even though we're not talking to Lou for another few weeks. I think that this conversation we just had is going to be an important one uh, going forward to understand a tip and what they did, and also to understand, you know, where do we want this all to go? And that's some of what I'm going to be asking Lou. Do we want, uh, you know, kind of a public admission that his old organization is still happening and that they are going to take a stronger, more public role in uh, investigating UFOs? Is that what we want? Or do we want another uh, more public group like Project Blue Book to look into this, and what value would there be in the constraints that an organization would have for those reasons that Alexander just outlined to us? So there's a lot to think about, and uh, if we are, you know, going to be influencers in this arena, which some of us are, or any of us can be, just by getting involved, then uh, you know we've got to do it in an intelligent way and. So these are the conversations that are happening. These are the conversations that are going to be happening at the uh, AAPC, the uh, Anomalous Aerospace Phenomena Conference that the SCU is going to be putting together in a few weeks uh, that Lou will be at as well. And and this is really important because in the past we would talk with no access to people who can make things happen. But the times have changed very, very much so these days. And so it's an exciting conversation to be in. And uh, and I'm so happy to be able to be in a position to be in this conversation. Now, to learn more about John Alexander, go to johnbalexander.com. He's an extremely interesting guy. He does a lot of traveling around the world, not only as a defense um contractor or consultant, and he still does that sort of work for, you know, large defense companies. But he also uh, researches the paranormal. He visits shaman and everything all around the world. And in fact, at that conference, his first half was about what we just talked about uh, at the Phoenix MUFON meeting. The second half was all about this weird phenomena that he ran into. Uh, His book is called Reality Denied, First-hand experiences with things that can't happen but did. And uh, his involvement with uh, Robert Bigelow, he he worked with the National Institute of Discovery Sciences. So uh, this project, when it began looking into this Utah ranch, that became a focus of uh, ATIP, or at least the original incarnation of it. Uh, you know, John helped organize those. So John has looked into these other weird stuff. And even though people get upset when he says, hey, I don't see any evidence. And I did look with my ATP group. I do not see any evidence of some large MJ-12 type of cabal overseeing all of this. Uh, But he does see a lot of phenomena going on that he feels is all related, including 
the UFO phenomena, which he's a, he's a very strong proponent of. That is a real mystery we need to look into. So, uh, and very much of what he said in the past, we have seen mirrored uh, in the revelations of A-Tip and Lou Elizondo. Now, granted, he did tell me in a prior interview he didn't know about the existence of A-Tip. However, um, you know, that began in 2007 before he was uh, running his ATP group. But how it operates, why they do what they do, the similarities to his ATP program, I think, are very significant because it demonstrates he does have an understanding of what he's talking about. And he was able to uh, demonstrate that, able to show that, you know, the way he operates is similar to the way they operate. And the reasons are X, Y, and Z. And now those reasons, I think we have to put even a closer ear to, I think we should have before, but because he, he obviously knows what he's talking about. So uh, it's an important time. Uh, we're lucky to have uh, John Alexander and some of these others to listen to. So check out his, his site, his book, the one prior to Reality Denied, is UFOs, Myths, Conspiracies, and Realities, another Excellent book when it comes to UFOs. Highly, highly recommend it. You can find all of this at johnbalexander.com. So thank you all once again for coming to listen to the show. Some updates. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do a UFO Seriously Live this week. I'm going to try to do it. I might do it Wednesday because we are going to be traveling to the Conscious Life Expo where we're going to have a UFO Congress booth there. So if you're in the LA area and you visit that expo, you know, come on in and say hi. So we'll be traveling and setting up on Thursday. And so I might not get one of those out, but I'll do my best to possibly get that out maybe a day earlier. Otherwise, uh, all kinds of exciting stuff going on. Check out my blog, alejandrotrojas.com, for everything I'm writing about. I just recently wrote uh, another, you know, I'm doing my updates on Project Blue Book, uh, my reviews on that show, which includes the real background to some of the real cases that uh, some of which you hopefully haven't heard before. And the only reason I say hopefully is so that I'm the one who uh, turns you on to some of this great stuff. Uh, and I link and, and give you some material to look at in all of those stories. Uh, I also have been writing, wrote about Orville, and I'll be doing reviews on those for all of this for Den of Geek um, and more. So a lot of exciting things going on, people. Anyway, I want to thank Martin Willis for helping me at the beginning of the show with the UFO news. Most, if not all of which, you can see at openminds.tv. If you don't see it there, you'll definitely see it in the Open Minds UFO News Group on Facebook. Also, I want to thank, uh, you know, uh, Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. And uh, be sure to check out ufocongress.com for lots of cool new products that we've got going on and see some of what we'll be offering at the Conscious Life Expo. Oh, by the way, we're going to have a lot of great uh, information coming up in the next few weeks about the conference, so stay tuned for that. But I also want to thank uh, 
Systematics for the bumper music. And of course, I want to thank you, all the listeners, for coming back. We may or may not have another show next week, depending on, you know, the busyness I'm going to have this weekend. And I'm going to be going on a trip in a couple weeks. So we're going to be spotty here for the next couple weeks. But then uh, we're going to come back with a bang when we get uh, some more information from Lou Elizondo. And then, of course, we get that interview. But Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, adios, muchachos.